and welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters, who've been doing this for way too long, talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. These are a few of my favorite things. And that is DM Dave. I was going to change it. I was going to change some of the original words into like D&D things, but I was like, that's way too fucking cheese. Like, <laughs> this is already cheese enough with my singing intro, so I, we don't need to add a whole wheel of provolone, as Tony would say. I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know, what are you know, a few of your favorite things? Your dice, your your monster manual, my your, burger. your terrified my players. <laughs> cheddar. Your, a nice character death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yummy. And that is a great segue, though, because we are today talking about what are our favorite things, our biggest influences as we were learning how to play this game. So, uh, Dave, you were the one who came up with this. You wanted to give us a little bit of backstory behind where this comes from? Yeah, so this actually is from uh, – so I follow um, another DMD. He's DM David blog. Uh, on, uh, <laughs> Not confusing at all. Right, yeah, yeah. So I'm really we'll give that a link down in the notes. That's one of the things I tried to do with the whole rock and roll DM thing to try to give myself some sort of like you know buffer with this guy, you know. But he does some really cool um, articles. But he did a really interesting article I shared with uh, with Tony and Thorin about five role playing products that shaped how I played Dungeons and Dragons 1978 to 2000. And he goes through five things. He starts off like talking about something like Tomb of Horrors, right? Like the first like real module that was not just here's random rooms and fill them up. Um, <laughs> and he goes, he, he does a little description about it. And it made me start thinking, that's kind of neat. What are the things that inspired us or that shaped and influenced the styles that we've all been now talking about for damn near a year now? Woo! Yeah. But man, this is a good topic. You know, I, uh, I really like the idea of going through kind of what did shape you as a, as a dungeon master and as a gamer, because I do think it has a big influence on the kind of gamer you are. Well, we've talked a lot about how, like, I'm not as big on like kind of the, the character driven story driven kind of style of game. I'm bigger on the world driven kind of game. And I'm bigger on something where you get to, where, where you interact with like a lot of weapons and you make choices based on kind of, how you kit out your character and how, how you outfit yourself. And these things yeah. I find are interesting. They're like kind of getting like a little, I don't, I don't like something that's too serious, like too seriously realistic, but something that lets you make some choices. And this is just your characters or superheroes. I kind of, I kind of dig that. Mm. And I do know that comes from some of my early gaming influences. Absolutely. Uh, and probably also Conan the Barbarian, which yeah, the sure. was one of the greatest sword and sorcery movies ever made. It, that is arguably the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Mm, in some that ways, one. in some ways, yeah. probably well, less magic than in most D and D movies. Well, and I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves on the influence because mine actually, I would say, starts with mythology, Greek and Norse, mm. uh, Arabian Nights, and Arthurian legends. Like that is really the the foundation of my influence. I am very story driven. Uh, yeah. Like DM Dave likes to carry the game a little bit with his acting sometimes. I have to carry <laughs> my story sometimes because sometimes I get a really great party and, you know, sometimes the, the chemistry is just not there. Not because they're not good players, but they don't click. And I have to try to bring the, create that chemistry with something. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that because I think all of us, I know I, when I was a kid, I mean, I would be bringing home those giant coffee table sized books of Greek mythology and Norse with all the awesome artwork and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I would agree. I think that's probably a giant influence that that just kind of permeates. I almost don't even think about it because it's so ingrained, right? Just from from the, your earliest days, right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, well, first of all, for me, also my name obviously Thorin, <laughs> you know, I'm literally named after the, the after the, the dwarf and the Hobbit, but also Thorin is also a Viking name. It, it is of Thor. It is related to, to, to the God Thor. Sure. So like coming out and being interested in Viking mythology, Greek mythology, the Lord of the Rings, reading that as early as I could, all those things certainly uh, shaped and kind of pushed me into, in, in, into my love of fantasy, which led directly into my love of role-playing games. Um, but yeah, for some reason, you know, I ran through all what I thought were all the Greek myths by the time I was like in junior high. Like I was really into that stuff. And it got to the point where I got a little older. I stopped looking at the Greek myths and Roman myths because I'd just done them all. And I got more interested in things like Celtic mythology, Viking mythology, which was still kind of hard to get your hands on at that time. Not hard now. Yeah, this is like back in like the 80s, you know, it's, Access access was different in the 80s. Some of the stuff was easier <laughs> to find and kind of pushed on you more than Viking myths. Like you were reading Greek myths in school. You weren't reading Viking myths in school. And God knows they didn't even know who the Celts were. You know, I I, I remember I self-studied I self-studied on the Celts in college, and I was like literally pulling stuff out of archaeology field reports that, you know, because there wasn't that much written about it for like or for consumer consumption. It was all kind of known at the archaeological level still. You know, and today that's totally different. Today all this stuff's out there and we get you have a lot more access to these kinds of things. But that really for me uh kind of pushed me in that direction. You know, my name leading me to an interest in fantasy and an interest in mythology, leading me to an interest in history in general. And just thinking it'd be a lot cooler to live in a time when we got to use swords. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I I think you can take that back all the way to why uh, why RP this type of RPG with D and D had began anyway, right? It was the whole sword and sorcery idea? But that's kind of pulls to the first thing I thought of, which was for me the earliest thing, earliest in terms of in terms of the game, right? Yeah. Um, was, we're a little we're a little off topic, right? Like, cause yeah, we're starting with what were our influences, no, but this is really more about what are the RPG no, no, supplements and books and stuff. But that's absolutely uh, all of that is absolutely correct, which leads you, I think, to the first time you see your first product, right? Your first mm. uh, thing. And for me, it was the magenta box. I'm going back, right? I'm going pre-red box, <laughs> right? The magenta box, the Tom Moldvay and Zeb Cook. Uh, basic and expert sets, um, which were like the kind of the 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 quick start rules of of D and D at that point, um, and that was the first thing that made me with all of the mythology that I loved and the fantasy and Lord of the Rings and all of that stuff, um, made it into this game with all of this amazing artwork and all that. And that's we've talked about this before, and I think it's an important point to make that. We come to this, especially for people who are like new to the hobby entirely. A lot of us are coming to this with a lot of understanding that we don't even realize is understanding. You know, the mm. idea of the six attribute stats, right? Strength, intelligence, dexterity, right? And hit points and armor class and all of these things, right? And that's all like I was steeped in it. 
as a kid, you know, because I, well, as we've talked about, I would just be reading through those books or through honorable mention, the uh, advanced Dungeons and Dragons one with Ringle Run on the cover. Um, <laughs> and my favorite Dungeon Master guide, that one on the cover where he's opening the doors to the orc hordes or whatever the hell it was. Um, and you're just you're just absorbing in the same way we absorb all of that mythology and Arthurian legend. We're absorbing these rule sets and these ideas about how a game like this might run, you know. So for mm -hmm. me, that was probably the earliest thing was the magenta box, the mold bay That definitely primes your players to be interested in playing a role playing game for sure. Uh, it's shaped uh, my style as a DM because I like the epic game. So you have the Greek and Norse epics. Uh, every universe that I'm running, if it's a D&D &D setting, there's a desert. I guarantee you there's a desert, there's some pyramids, then there's a genie's lamp somewhere in my universe. <laughs> Go find it. If um, we're talking about supplements, I would say... Or core. Obviously, or, 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 or supplement or core products. Um, Redbox was certainly, uh, you know, my first love. Uh, the first edition, uh, second Monster Manual, was an, I think I said this before, is an absolute, absolute masterpiece. Like, you, you just want to go through that and you're like, I want my guys, to, my players to fight this monster and this monster and this monster. I agree, the first edition DMG, again, like, I, I have friends who each one of the DMs have read that thing three to five times. That's yeah. really no exaggeration at all. And finally, I'd say the Greyhawk box set, because there was a universe in that box set. We had a campaign run for easily close to three years out of that box set. Whatever the hell we paid for that. Like, really, we should be sending them royalty checks. <laughs> Careful. I think Washi's looking at that pricing policy. Tony, that's a good point, though, too, because what do we often do with people who are coming into the hobby now? And they say, well, what is D&D? &D? Or what is, right, what is what is this you're playing? And you go, oh, well, do you uh, do you like, like, Game of Thrones? Oh, do you like uh, Lord of the Rings, the movies? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of like that, right? But, like, if you were one of those, right? And then we utilize that in the way that the myths made sense to us or Conan. It made sense. Oh, okay, this is how I can play that. Um, it's still the same thing now. People are still, it, you're, you're, you're making pop culture points uh, for them to be able to pull off of, to understand it, what with this crazy thing that we do around the table. Absolutely. And it really is. You, I think there's the, the two pillars that build an interest in D&D. It's really, number one, the idea that, you know, you're either caught up in liking fantasy or liking that kind of pop culture, and you kind of want to spend some time in it. Yeah, you know, the idea that you that you are going to enjoy spending a time in a game that takes you there. And of course, today, more and more that comes from also a video gaming background, people who are enjoying things like Skyrim or things like, you know, World of Warcraft and that kind of thing. And, you know, wanting to spend some time there in a way that isn't bounded by what's in the video game, but is a little more, but it's more driven by your imagination and your friend's imagination. And I think that from the beginning, I mean, it's it's kind of always been, I think, what really drives this stuff, the idea that you can have this character. I mean, Excalibur, the movie Excalibur, how was that for driving you to d and I mean, that was it's a on my huge list. influence for me, too. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it looks and feels perfect. There's just this vibe you get when you're consuming Even content. Even Merlin's hat in that movie? Oh yeah, the the the, the shiny uh, the shiny dome, the the shiny the ball, the basically the the literal chrome dome. 
Yeah, I, I was a little confused by that, uh, watching that back in the day. But <laughs> yes, absolute masterpiece. And look, I, don't run the don't run those armors past anyone with any knowledge of historical armor, because there are some crazy, cause some crazy '80s wrestling things going on with the uh, with the shoulder pads. Are you, <laughs> you can't have sex in armor, because that actually happened in that movie too, as I recall. <laughs> and the whole thing, you know. These are the things that really bring us here. And it's funny because we've seen pop culture move more in that direction. You yeah. know, when I was a kid, so I'm born, you know, we, we're growing up in the 80s. We're, you know, born in the 70s. So out of the 60s and 70s, you had like Led Zeppelin. You had this, you did have like a, you, that was when really Tolkien got super, got, got super popular. And you had that upswelling of kind of belief in that kind of not belief, but interest in these fantasy things that kind of cooled off as the 80s got more materialistic and the 90s got more, you know, dour and, you know, cranky. And it really kind of came back really, you know, millennials are, are huge fans of that culture as well. So it's kind of grown up and become, it was sort of a thing that at the time was kind of nerdy and subculture. And now it's become kind of, you know, it's not a subculture. It's now a top cultural driver, as we can all see with the box office receipts. So, you know, all that stuff really drives you into it. And then it's, you get these books and it's going to start for me. My first most influential gaming product is definitely that red box. You know, we've told the story here a million times. It was sitting in my parents' closet. I found it. Uh, and they were like, yeah, go ahead. They had never played with it. Like, they had never opened it. Like, like the dice weren't even open yet. You know, they had never done anything with it. Someone oh had given it to them as a gift years ago. And I just start, you know, I, I open it up. And there is a feeling. I don't know. I don't know if you guys get this. But there is a feeling I get when I first start engaging with a gaming product like this. That just is like, I don't, I feel like I'm staring into a whole world, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was the first time I think I felt that. There have been, you know, and as I got other books and other supplements over the years, like that's kind of when you knew it was, okay, yeah, I really want to do this. Um, the second thing that was very influential would have been the second edition. I started getting the second edition player's handbook. I didn't get first, I didn't get into first edition stuff. I didn't even get into the red box until after first edition was gone. So I started with second edition really after, after the red box. And, you know, you're getting this stuff and you're reading it and you're thinking about what you can do with it. And it's just like there's just this weird sense of like almost like an excitement and vertigo of all the things you could do with a game like this. Yeah. And that feeling more than anything else is why I kept coming back to gaming years and years over the years. And how why these things kind of made such an impact on me that they did develop styles of their own. I mean, do you guys get that? When you when you're kind of do you remember getting that when you were first getting into these things or like kind of that that feeling of just like. I don't know. You just kind of want to stare into the books and kind of study them for hours and like what you can do with them. I think Griffs did that amazingly, the Palladium system, um, because we talked about a little bit earlier where Pathfinder can do any – had fast customization before 5e really laid that on thick. And, and 4e, yeah. not to say that you know, 3 through 5 did not, but Rifts really before anybody was doing that where you were like, hey, I'm a fighter and maybe I have a fighter kit attached to my warrior, you literally could have been – anything you could be a detective you could be a superhero you could be a dragon you could be a duck i mean there it is now could I don't you know be you howard know. the duck you most certainly could i guarantee you there's an <laughs> alien duck race in one of those supplements and you could be yes howard the duck if you actually decide. yeah absolutely <laughs> and I if you see some human, of the animal stuff and, yeah no there's there's a whole wacky alien book out there that's very comprehensive but i think all of those products had a sense of mystery to it it's before you know you looked at it and you're like okay so this is your fighter thief cleric wizard combo like because this was all new 
and that had a, a, a mystique and had a, and had a literal had a feeling of magic surrounding it that um, made made you hunger to really read through it and tear through it and uh, share it with all your nerdy friends. You know, one thing I think added to that was we were getting these books and reading them before computer games had really filled this gap. Like I had D and D books long before I had a computer. Yeah. Um, even before I had a, I think at the time I might've had an Atari at the time, but like nothing that I felt like was like a role-playing game like this, you know, you don't really start getting these kind of types of role-playing games until you start hitting things like final fantasy on the, on the Nintendo, which was a little later than this. And even then it didn't, you know, a computer game, especially back then didn't feel as immersive. It wasn't the same having these access to these things and being able to really kind of do whatever you want it and execute any kind of story or world or character you wanted to make felt so cool and i think that was a really big influence to how i approach the games because that's part of why i i want things to be wide open and not on rails and how and, and like have a world to explore because to me that potential is what's exciting about it yeah i um i would agree thorn um i felt the same way uh with we've talked a lot about the uh, lonely fun you know the the just reading the books making characters you're not playing right you're just like you're literally just you know what is a uh, dungeoning or whatever what did you call it? it's like i mean if you've grown up with computers, and and dragons you know <laughs> if you've grown up with computers yeah 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 uh... <laughs> Well, it's, it's too it's too on the nose. I mean, with the magic, yeah. we used to call it magturbating when you were playing two decks against each other by yeah. yourself. But, but you know, um, dungeon master, it just goes right into it. It's just dungeon masturbating. Now that doesn't that's too close. <laughs> yeah, like I say back to like you know like the old Moldvay Cook stuff and the 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 one e books. Um, and the level of I so you had people like you know Larry Elmore and Frank Menser and stuff starting to come in and do these amazing pieces of art for this stuff, right? For the covers especially. But within the books themselves, it still had this really old school thing. And it was almost like the it was almost like punk rock art. It was yeah. like the, what the Ramones did. They stripped this shit down. You know, just go back into like the one e-books. You can probably find PDFs of them and look at some of the inner artwork of it. And just the it's weird and it's very tongue in cheek and it's some of it's horrifying. But it just, it's so visceral and sticks with you to the point where I told you guys about how I had grabbed from the library the Art and Arcana book that they had released. And just flipping through that thing, this rush of memories comes flooding back, just seeing a piece of artwork. And you're like, oh my God. And it opens up all of these ideas of these worlds to you, you know? And that's, so yeah, you're like you're saying, when you saw those books, it opened up this world to you. And for me, when I was coming back in to gaming, right, in my adult years, I think that's why, and I, I put this on my list here, I said, uh, the Pathfinder Beginner Box, uh, the initial box they have, what drew me to it? Because I was looking, I was like, okay, we're going to play like D&D, so let me go out and see what's out there. Who the hell knows what's even out there at the time, right? I didn't know. And I saw, like, I was I was shopping online, and I'm looking at stuff, and I'm seeing what's inside and what it looks like. And the Pathfinder stuff was so the, – the artwork and the, the way they laid it out and the images, it just brought you into this, oh, my God, I want to play this, man. And then the, the how they produced it was just – that's what really – brought me back in um was was with that in the same way some of that artwork that just opened up those worlds for you you know and then they kind of held me by the hand 
in the beginner box and say, okay, this is, this is, a, this is a D20. If you're going you to tie your shoes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are going to roll this and you're going to add this. <laughs> so in terms of, so in terms of specific supplements that have influenced your DMing style and your approach to gaming, yeah. Yeah. what are some of those things? A little crunchier, you know? I mean, we've, we've, okay, we've talked about the nostalgia. We've talked about the sense of wonderment of opening these things, the art. But, like, on a crunchy side, what do you think were your big influences? Uh, maybe not specifically a RPG supplement, but, I mean, show me an old-school DM who has not been heavily or at least partially de- uh, influenced by the Lord of the Rings and did and said to themselves, I love, I, I want to do my own variations and I can do this. You know, actually we talk about our influences. Some of them influence you because they were truly great. Like Tolkien's work. Yeah. I'm a little biased. I know, but some other things that influenced us had failings that you looked at and said, no, I don't want to do that. Don't believe me. <laughs> like we grew up watching like the ATM and GI Joe, not to say that those were crappy shows at all in fact they were great but something that sticks out in my memory as a child is nobody freaking dies ever like you're watching shows the guys are firing a million bullets no one gets shot and i'm like i can't run a game like this 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 makes no sense you can't unless you're gonna like doing this is almost like a comedy that's where the continuity unravels and for that reason it became unintentionally an influence mm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Dave? What influenced you mechanically? I, I just real quick, I'm going to push back on Tony there. I'm going to say uh, you need to go back and watch some of the GI Joe stuff now. That shit was bad. It was bad. I loved it. I was a huge Joe uh, fan. Sure. Go back. Terrible. Kids these oh, wait, days you're saying- don't understand how good they have it. <laughs> they have plot and story arc and character development. Oh my god. Oh my god! I don't you know. know. You have some pretty complicated GI Joe story arcs. Maybe a uh, may, may, maybe a wormhole, a rabbit hole to fall down another time. But I, mean, I loved I loved Thundercats. Okay, when I was a kid, that, like, yeah, that, that, was, that was just all. I watched the reboot that they put out. It was like they were putting on Macbeth. Man, I was just like, <laughs> oh my god, this is amazing! Like, well, that was. <laughs> Well, literally, you have um, Gargoyles, I think, literally puts on a Macbeth. Yeah, Gargoyles was literally... Was I mean, yeah, and, like, like they're basically... The whole thing is essentially, like, I mean, there, there's a particular yeah. miniseries in there that is a retelling of Macbeth. Yeah. But, yeah. like, for the first time ever, like, oh, that's why you shouldn't kill people. I mean, yeah, they actually <laughs> delivered good messages in the great TV show. But, okay, mechanically, supplementally... Yeah, getting yeah. back to it. So this actually comes right off what I just said. So I I, I had originally gotten the beginner's box, the, the Pathfinder beginner's box, um, cracked it open, and it, it came like kind of like the old Mulvey Cook stuff or the Menser stuff. It was very it was very stripped down, but even being stripped down, it was still Pathfinder. So it still had a level of crunch to it, uh, which led me to then getting the core rulebook and all of its like 400 and some odd pages or more. I can't even remember now. And I mean, you want crunch, man, go into it. But what I got off of that, because I was building my campaign in that world that they had, Galarian, I wanted to use those areas. And the Pathfinder wiki that they've created was, it what not was, is ridiculous. It is so intense and immersive that it, I was able to build out these 
areas of mythology and stuff into it that was already there. And it gave me, uh, uh, I think it really gave me a lot of sense as to what I'm looking at when I'm world building. Some of the nitty gritty stuff, some of the large overview stuff. And I will even go back there sometimes just to kind of see how they put something together, how they put a certain race or a certain uh, settlement or, a, or an area together uh, to pull from. The city of Zaprora, the infernal uh, kingdom idea, I had taken the original idea from something that's set in that Galarian world. Uh, because it was so, I was just like, I want to play with that. It was very much like you do, Thor, where you were like, I want to play in this world. I was like, I want to play with that kind of city, that kind of kingdom, whatever, and see how that how that runs, you know. So yeah, in terms of uh, learning how to world build more, uh, that was huge for me. I mean, we're still all waiting, but Thor's never run a Celtic game. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, last time I brought it up, you guys were saying more shit in Eberron campaign. I, I started Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. No, okay, Call of Cthulhu. There's is only cool. so much time, guys. There's only so many days. <laughs> That's it. Woodstock Wanderers off. Call Celtic campaign in. We're good to go. <laughs> we're just going to do a little guys. time shift. You know, cue riffraff, you know. Yeah, we're, we're going to do a little time slip into the Celtic world from, from the Woodstock Wanderers. Uh, so for me, you know, other mechanical influences. So, you know, after the Red Box, really the second edition Player's Handbook, DMG, and Tome of Magic. I got them all kind of right together, like the same kind of Christmas period. And those like were my first real exposure to a full to a full RPG system. Because I hadn't really, you know, I had the basic box for the for for the first DD basic set. I had seen some first edition stuff, but not really gotten into it. This was like, I actually got these books and I'm studying them. That was like the first set I got. And yeah, I had to go out later and get the monsters compendium, which will come up next. Cause that's actually also hugely influential to me. Mm. But I remember flipping through the player's handbook and okay. There's the, you know, I like, yeah, it's, it, it lays out how do you make your characters, but it also, everything about the second edition version of this had world implications your characters when they hit ninth level they all acquire followers they all acquire keeps they all acquire you know these kind of world level things beyond just their personal powers like when i so when i look at fifth edition fifth edition really has turned not not saying this in a negative way but it has turned D&D into something that is much more super, more like a superhero kind of game. Not that the theme is superhero, but your character development is all about power development. It's all about personal power development. It isn't focused on gear a little bit, but not really. The gear is very complimentary. Yeah, there's nothing in the base in, in the base advancement about, you know, getting titles and land and retainers. So it's, it's, it, it plays more like a comic book reads. It's about this character and their setup and their backstory and their powers and the adventures they have. Second edition, though, when you're reading through that book the first time, you're kind of laying out, it, it's more about running the world to me. Uh, I think it did a better job on the exploration side of things and a better job on the world building side of things of, you know, okay, so as your character goes along, like I remember if you were the druid, and if you wanted to get above like level nine, you had to go track down other druids and start killing them off. Oh, good times. <laughs> I, mean, I had much? a buddy who almost became the Hierophant druid. And <laughs> no, he did. Eventually, after years of torture, he could have been like the greatest wizard of all time. But no, he wanted to be a druid. And he was a great druid. <laughs> you know, it really, 
what's hilarious to me about that is like if you're going to apply that to any fantasy mythos why druids yeah i right? mean it's the sith mechanic why it's perfect for sith <laughs> why druids yeah, why is that the necromancer mechanic, right? Or right. something like a warlock or something, right? <laughs> he also did that in earlier editions with monks, but that made sense. Now, also, of course, you know, kung fu movies and kung fu theater heavily influenced my fight scenes. Mm. And I'm like, well, going through first edition and all that stuff, I'm like, all right, how can I make all this work? So the Oriental Adventures certainly gets an honorable, you know, mechanical mention in there where they introduce martial arts into the original core advanced Dungeons and Dragons rules. Yeah, yeah. Also, and that was, uh, and that's still, that and Unearthed Arcana really get a lot of respect for expanding the first edition D&D rules in ways that really you didn't have in second edition. You know, it's one of the things with second edition. Second edition was much more constrained than first edition was. Even like your, even the, uh, like, like, like the class books you, you would get, which are definitely some of my influences too. You know, they were much more mechanically they were mechanically balanced sometimes to the point of a fault because it was hard to find stuff that you really felt was worth adding to your character. Sometimes a few things here and there, the Celtic handbook sure. in particular goes a little crazy. Um, also the first place. You say, no problem. You've never let me play a Celt who could throw a spear with his foot and have it explode thorns throughout the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally balanced mechanic. <laughs> No, but a very one-e kind of mechanic, though, or a two-e, though, you know, having those things. The dragon puts the his hands up. He's like, okay, okay, the barbarian's got a spear. He's going to kick it. I give up. Take all my gold. Take your I'm foot done. off the spear and we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows what we're talking about. But, uh... but, so, I mean, but that approach, that, that, because throughout the second edition books, the the the, the player's handbook and then DMG, you're finding all of these little things that are like, well, here's how you scale a wall. Here's how vision and light works. Here's how actual travel works on horses and on boats. And it's like all these little. And I'm not saying they don't have it now, but this was like the first way, the first time I really engaged with it was in second edition, and it was more of a focus than it is has been in fourth or fifth edition at least. And that, to me, was really influential about how I approach the game, because I approach it first as this is a world these characters are living in and how this world works. And we're spending time in this world. And that was so. So that's where that comes from with me. And it's not that the character, I mean, characters are very important, but the characters fit into this world and they're advancing in this world in that kind of world driven approach that I felt like you had a second edition, at least that I took away from second edition was super influential. Mm. Well, the world driven approach gives it more of a feel for things like why having troops is valuable, why breaking into a place and dealing with guards is a problem, because one of them could run you through or shoot you, depending upon the game you're in, versus I bust in a place and I'm level 20, I'm just going to slap all of them down in one singular slap and <laughs> deal with the boss. All these guys can harm you. You talked about earlier about not wanting to play a super realistic game for D&D. I could not agree more. That belongs in Call of Cthulhu. Dave, I know you instantly fell in love with the system. It is neat. It does a lot of neat stuff, but keep that out of my Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I, I didn't want to think about what happens when a dragon bites me using those rules. Oh, I know so you're not I into, die. You don't want to do the uh, the 5e hardcore patch rules for a, for a game then, huh? No? That would be like playing Diablo using the hardcore <laughs> rules. Oh, I lost my level 74 character. He's deleted because I died. Oops. I'll say this, though. 
I've maybe gone a little further into the fringe gaming stuff than you guys have, like the other kind of books out there. There's a lot of, quote, grim, dark role-playing out there that is specifically made to get nitty-gritty on elements of medieval combat. Call of Cthulhu does not really get like that. Call of Cthulhu is very dangerous, but it's not very simulationist. There are games that get into, well, here's how you fence, and where's your guard, and how do you stab each other? And here's how armor interacts with not, with you not dying. And, oh, if you're hit where you don't have armor, well, you, now you have serious problems and major wounds. So there are games that actually, even compared to Call of Cthulhu, get much more simulationist. The reason I tend not to like them is twofold. They tend to get too nitty-gritty, where I haven't found any that that didn't feel like they were so that weren't so detailed and complex that I felt like they lost the fun. And two is they're too deadly. Like, you know, people go through camp military campaigns in, in, and they camp they, they would campaign for many years and come home safely. Um, there are duelists who had like 25, 30 duels over the course of their lives and they survived and they, they, they thought they were fine, but they lived, you know, I want to have that kind of world. I don't want to have the kind of world where ooh, you slipped and you fell on his dagger and now you're dead. Like, Ah, the irony. <laughs> no, I'll the say complexity in the overly deadliness. I think does what I <laughs> But the um, but no, Tony. Just to your point, I did uh, I did kind of fall in love with the Call of Cthulhu system because because Thorne is starting to run run uh, a game for us in it, um, which again is part of our New Year's thing that we talked about, uh, where we're playing a lot of different games too because we are immediately seeing almost immediate results in how we're approaching our D&D games too, right? We're, because we're, we're, it, so. we are keeping our resolutions, damn it. Yes, absolutely. But uh, no, and just uh, for me, the Cthulhu, it, it's more the narrative quality of it. And I think that really, that really lights a fire for me. Thorne had said that a while back that he thought I would really dig it because of that. But, um, but yeah, well, I digress though. Yeah. Okay. And, and is, uh, is Bonnie liking it too? She has a great character. Yeah. No, yeah, that's that's part of it too, right? Like the 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 type of character you can create is so different. It's so like there's just you can I don't know, I felt like I could put more personality into it. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because what? it's no, I here's my reasoning. And this is just kind of off the cuff, but so with with Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu cuz they're pretty much the same game. There's some different mechanics, but same idea. Well, 19- yeah, betrayal is different. We're playing Call yeah. of Duty, just to be. Yeah, but 1920s, 1930s Earth, right? Mm. I understand that, or at least I understand the caricature of that, right? So, mine, like my professor, right from Princeton, Dr. Cogswell, I can kind of get that because I can create a character that would be in a movie from the 30s or the 20s, right, or something like that, where a medieval character, like my dragonborn cleric. Like, I can pretend, but I can't really know that character in the same way, you know? So I think it, part of it is that. He's fire. Because <laughs> I don't bring fire. That's pretty much the only reason. I've had some spicy peppers in my day, I'll have you know. I had, like, that nuclear hot sauce from the from the Hot Ones wing show. I've had that. It's I've breathed some fire. You, you know what else, though, makes Call of Cthulhu in any kind of historical game interesting? And it is something I do try to bring in D&D. Uh, to to what extent I can. You're now dealing with real history, which means you can tie into real details in your character background. So, for instance, Dave, your character has done that. You're, he's a professor from Princeton. You've mentioned other Princeton professors, like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who who I'm assuming. It. We're hearing. There's there's talk that we might get uh, 
Professor Einstein. Uh, no, no, he's in, not in, there yet. No, in several years, there's talk though among the board. They're really trying because he's really made some landmark. He's still a patent clerk, I think. In the been, 1920s. Oh, no, oh God, no! He already had his miracle year. Did he? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, he had the one year in nineteen. Yeah, I'm not. Well, that it. was in the the later twenties, which I guess um, could be. Yeah, where he released uh, his three papers in a row. That literally shook the the foundations of physics. Cold fusion, baby. Not quite that, but. <laughs> okay, I got to tell you, I was way off on my dating of Albert Einstein. It yeah. was 1905, so you would know Albert Einstein. And this is what makes Call of Cthulhu cool. Aside right. from the fact that my history professors are weeping that this history <laughs> did not know when Einstein had his major breakthrough year. Uh, Aside from that, it, yeah. So you, there's you, talk on the board that we might get Professor Einstein on. We're trying to figure out a way to get him there. Perhaps if politics <laughs> continues to advance the way they they are. <laughs> no, I have to disagree because as soon as you get him, he'll be working on the Manhattan Project. Actually, no, he didn't work on the Manhattan Project. Oh no, no. no Maybe you could influence him. He knew him. all of them. He was. I mean, uh, yeah, and he was. Um, I mean, he, he a lot of his theories were kind of the basis of some of the, of the uh, work. Well, he, yeah, he created the, uh, the the understanding of how to do it. Um, yeah. And then they took it and said, let's turn it into a um. But anyway, this is yeah. way, way off topic here. But this is what makes Call of Cthulhu interesting, though, in that you can oh. take that that kind of – it's not just historical nerdiness for science stuff. If you're into kind of like culture from back then, like, oh, a lot of people play Call of Cthulhu and they play a flapper because that's well, a fascinating kind of, you know, kind of person from that, from that era and they get to engage with that. Bonnie's character, Maud West, is yeah. literally a female detective from London from history. Like, she's a real person. You know? I, I, I thought that might be the case. I didn't realize she was really from London because she really has a very, uh, what they call the Atlantic accent. The, yes, the, the, but I th I'm going to go she with... Said she was branding a cow. Because she's like a PI and a mistress of disguise, she has, like, she's learned yeah. so many dialects. You know, that's where I'm going. That's where I think we're going with it, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah. We'll see. And that is, like, like, like the way she's talking, <laughs> it is that kind of pseudo, it's slightly Bostonian, slightly New York, but really kind of has... I think what they call it, the transatlantic or the Atlantic yeah, like, accent. Yeah, Papa, you see? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that that 1920s radio voice was literally an affected voice that people picked up and they were working in media at the time. It wasn't actually how real New Yorkers talked. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, and that, but that is what makes Call Cthulhu neat. You can pull that kind of historical thing in. And, like, we played in a game where you're using a literal map of, like, 1927 uh, California. Literal. Like you can go right. online, like like I pulled in, I, I we were the the party was at Bookbinders, and I yeah you know, I'm not saying it's all historically accurate, but they were at a Bookbinders restaurant in Boston, and I went and dug up a Bookbinders menu so they could see what kind of thing was on the menu, you know, <laughs> like like you can do that kind of thing, which is neat and that's different than than D and D. You can't do that there. Uh, I do, but that kind of approach that is something I like to do when I can with like weapons and armor and material culture in D and D, and that's part of also why I kind of. Um, you know, to get back to where we were coming from, one of my most influential books to me was the second edition Arms and Equipment Guide. I don't know if Tony remembers this book. Dave, do you remember this book? I uh, do not know the second, the 2E stuff, at, like at all. So the 2E Arms and Equipment Guide broke down medieval gear, clothing, armor, weapons uh, in a way that really nothing else had. 
And it was very, it was a combination of game mechanics focus and also historical recreationist focused where there's a whole section talking about like details about medieval clothing, like the coifs they wore and like the, uh, you know, know, corsets and the different, like their doublets and like, just not, that is not combat focused, but it's just so you understand, like, what are the kinds of things they would be wearing, like a very kind of SCA kind of approach to it. And that was the core of this book. They went through some, some some details on castles, a long chapter on clothing. Then they went through a ton of different weapons. I think they turned the what is a uh, two-page weapons guide in the player's handbook into something that was four pages long, just for the table itself. Huh. Of all kinds of different weapons, different kinds Time of for swords. my Corbin. Yeah, well, the man catcher, the man catcher uh, poems in there, where you basically, which is a real thing, is a medieval piece of equipment that has basically a kind of a, um, it's kind of a, it's got like a, like almost like a springy steel at the end, where if you catch someone around their head and neck, it clamps around them, and you who have them caught on the end of a stick, like that's a real thing they had back then. They actually still have it now. Um, they, they they tend to use things like this to catch animals. I must go oh, through my right. old pike. <laughs> but like that that kind of book where it was a combination of the gaming detail and opening up your options with your character, but also tying it into the real kind of history and the cool stuff you were that, that, that you would have access to. Like they get into all the different types of armor and like little pieces of armor and how you could piecemeal together a suit. So you could be wearing chain mail with like arm, with like arm armor and leg armor and a helmet and what that meant. Those things to me were really cool. And that was that, that second edition arms and equipment guide. And that is something I feel is missing from 5e. We've talked about it. I haven't gone further with my kind of equipment update to kind of bring in more kind of uh, historical stuff, in part because I'm realizing as you go on in 5th edition, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> the further you go in 5th edition, the more magic takes over where that kind of equipment stuff would be. But for me, I kind of enjoy the equipment stuff more, the historic, the kind of historically influenced stuff more. Mm. In a lower level campaign, that would be more relevant. I mean, what are you saying? That, you know, there's all kinds of sword variety in 5e. You've got plenty of one-handed swords. You have a sword, and you have a rapier, and a short sword. I mean, you're you're rocking and rolling. I mean, there's no (laughs) other swords between that and the two-handed sword. None. One of the... We used to get a dragon magazine. There is a dragon magazine article that had like 25 different kinds of swords in it that were beyond like these were completely different swords taken from history with all their own little details and things they did better. That's the kind of thing I want. I like that. They don't have to be huge. They don't have to make a huge impact. Maybe magic is still more important, but I like the details. I like being able to say, yeah, the flavor. flavor And and the optimization, like we've talked about it. I like the idea that there are certain weapons that are better for killing dragons than daggers you know i don't like the idea that you that the thief is their daggers are just as effective against a person as they are against a, gi- a dragon or other giant creature because that is bullshit <laughs> there, there's no way your six inch your 12 inch dagger blade is going to do significant harm to this dragon i don't care where you stick it that's just not gonna work go try to stab an elephant see how that goes dave's killed an elephant with a dagger on a cane not yet not yet um, I will say, so I, uh, this isn't, I'm, I'm going to go a little, uh, tangential here, but I consider these types of things as supplements, uh, in our current day and age of audiovisual technologies and everyone's YouTubing and everyone is TikToking and Instagramming <laughs> and everything, right? Um, Tony has said on many occasions, uh, that, you know, uh, 
my my acting potential and all of these things uh, and NPCs. And I make no, uh, I, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anybody and I make no apologies for it. But um, one of my biggest things that has influenced my, uh, not only understanding of the game, but my style uh, is um, the advent of things like Critical Role, Matt Mercer, uh, Force Gray. Uh, these, uh, a lot of the live stream stuff that, shows me a style that resonates with me and I can go, okay, I could take this and this and this uh, and play with that in my own little sandbox and create something uh, new for it. So for me, uh, 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 that I consider that a supplement because it's a way in which one, it's a way in which I, I it helped me to, to well, better learn the game, better learn some of the mechanics and some of the, some of the rule sets and things like that. So they became a little bit more second nature. Um, but also in just in terms of, like I said before, with with the Pathfinder stuff, world building and character building and story building as well and plot points and how do you hit those and, you know, those types of things. So, you know, I, I constantly return to that well um, just to for, for some inspiration. I mean, those things can definitely be, you know, people across the world, I think, are influenced yeah. by those right now. It's, it's yeah. one of the biggest developments in, in role-playing. It's almost, that development has almost been more important than the development of 5th edition as a new edition. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, outside of the outside of the initial gaming community that was there, right? It opened the doors wide. In the same way in the 80s, when the, the cartoon blew the doors off the joint, too. Did it? I never thought the cartoon was that successful. Oh no! It was like huge. one season. Depends who you're asking. It only had huge. one season. I don't. I never felt like that. That that really sunk the hooks in the way that the like like Critical Role and things like that have done. Not, I mean, no, oh yeah, no, not to the same level. Not to the same level. But I would also say it, 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 to to back this up, if that cartoon had been more influential, I think it would have gone more than one season. It doesn't have that many episodes. Hmm. I just, I, I, they were selling a ton more of things like the red box and stuff at that time is all that, that's it. Maybe it's, uh, it might've just been that time in the eighties too. Like it all kind of came together in one, uh, in, in like kind of a Zenith maybe. Well, the other thing happening there and what gets overlooked a little bit is printing technology in minis technology has changed dramatically since then. Your options to print a book then and your options to print a book now are totally different. And I think one of the things going on was it was more economical to print a box set in some ways than a hardcover book back then. Mm. Uh, I think that was one of the things happening. Uh, but that, I could be wrong, but I think that had a lot to do with why they did things like that. I think it, the economics are different now. Um, and the prices in some ways are cheaper, although I don't know if we always see that. I'm curious, DM yeah. Dave, what are, your, what are your musical influences for your gaming? My musical influences? I think that's a very real question. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, for my gaming? Come on, man. You ever thought about montage? Like, your guys are, like, you're planning this out, and you're, like, writing your module, and you're listening to the music in the background. Like, what is that music? Or, I mean, like, sometimes some of my uh, modules, I'm listening to I'm thinking Eminem in my background because it's, <laughs> it's turning into a spoof or a Pink Panther. What's you know, funny what's, is... I have music in my mind during Dave's game that my character would reference. And they're all like kind of, they're all like, like snarky, aggressive rap songs. I, uh, that's funny because I actually don't like when I'm, uh, when I'm doing like when I'm prepping or stuff, I, I don't have music on. That's actually funny because music is such a huge part of my life. Um, that, uh, yeah, that's interesting. That actually stops me up. I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. I don't know. That, that, 
it's not part of your creative process at all? Not in not in terms of this, at least not in the same time. Not at the same time. Let's say that. Yeah. Let's say that. You know, I gotta say, like, I will sometimes throw music in because I know there's a music player in Roll Twenty, but it's always just a matter of I just gotta find something to capture this mood. It isn't really tied to my musical interest. When I'm playing a character, like I was saying, I tend to, but not when I'm DMing, which is weird because you would think this would go hand in hand. What about you, Tony? Do you? I mean, is there is there a musical influence on your end? I mean, real world stuff. I mean, back in the day, I'm talking thinking like Ozzy, Iron Maiden. Vintage Metallica, more recent, which I may be looking at, like Volbeat or Linkin Park. Um, but one of the things I kind of dip into is video game soundtracks, because yeah, some of them, sure. especially if it's an RPG, uh, Baldur's Gate, which was really one of the greatest RPGs of all time, had an amazing soundtrack. And you can't have a, a fantastic game without a good soundtrack to some extent tied to that. The Skyrim soundtrack still sends sends shivers down my spine. You're so biased. Oh, 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 oh. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just. I'm you're gonna die. And you're gonna go to that world happily. What? It's an impossible dying dragons out of dragons. the sky. What, of course, this is it's like they made it for me. It's like they focus grouped me for that game. I don't know. It <laughs> now I will say I would love I would I have played around with it before and I played around with it in live games as well, not just Roll Twenty where you have like jukebox there, but like in live games, I have played around with trying to get. Uh, literally a soundtrack going during the game too that I can adjust. But for me, at least maybe at this point, it's just one more thing that I have to keep a control on. And I, you know, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, unfortunately, because there are definitely music absolutely uh, would assist in the immersion of it uh, and creating a mood. And that can really start to mess with people, especially like we're doing like Strahd. So we're always trying to hit some of those like horror tones or goth tones, gothic tones. Uh, and music is, is perfect for that. I mean, the first thing I, I have the music playing every time you guys log in, you know, cause I just put on Barovian castle or whatever. And it's literally like, it just sounds like Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm like, fuck yeah, dude, this is awesome. Well, you did some for the Christmas game for the, for the Christmas land. Didn't you? I had found a carnival thing for when you yeah. guys came, we took break and they were going, That's they were cool. coming into Christmas land for the carnival. And I wanted kind of a carnival sound just to be like kind of freaky and stuff. I didn't find the right one though. Like I had to go so quick and I couldn't find like the doot, doot, <laughs> so it just was more ambient noise of like roller coasters and and laughs and all of this crap, you know. So yeah, <laughs> so I, I I threw some in there for the Call of Cthulhu game because you guys were going into a haunted house. Yeah. And I know in person I do certain tricks to kind of build the tension, like I slam the table when the bed hits the wall, like like I did certain things that you can't really do in Roll Twenty. Yeah, yeah. Really. <laughs> It was really easy to throw in, like, looking for, like, quote, just haunted house in the Roll20 jukebox, add them to a playlist. And then as you guys are thinking about what to do, I go in and press the button. But yeah. that is Call of Cthulhu, where I'm not working a lot of monsters. You know, it's not yeah. like I'm trying to manage 25 monsters in a the fight. There is one bad guy in that scenario. Most of the game is on you guys telling me what you do and then just me reacting to you. So I have time while you're talking to kind of put the press the button for, play. For, yeah. for, for playing the music. Yeah, That's a lot of times where during the game I might not be able to do it with music, but I will do it with um, all of a sudden I will yell. Or I will make yeah. a loud noise. It's hard over online because, like, you're in your living room. You're like, yeah, cool, man. Okay. 
But you never know. I know that Bonnie's mom was super freaked out during the uh, during the uh, uh, Christmas game for in Christmas Land. She said later, she was like, "Yeah, that was really kind of. I didn't like the one picture. It wasn't." <laughs> and I was like, "That's awesome. That's exactly the, what I wanted." The scissors for the grifter kids were quite creepy. I'll tell you what. You watch that show, and they do the scissors for the drifter, dude. That will screw with your head. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, it's creepy. It's creepy. Were there any video games that influenced your uh, creative process in the sense that you you saw, you played a game and you're like, okay, I'm stealing elements of this. Absolutely. I I feel like now I'm like spaceship guy from like, from the Lego movie. Spaceship, 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 Skyrim, Skyrim, Skyrim. Dude, Skyrim. I'm sorry. Skyrim. It's like, it's that's yeah. And that's real quick as an over, as a high overview with that. Um, we talked about this earlier, like computer games hadn't like, you know, uh, come up as fast as the books and stuff in the early days. But that's a big part of like the D&D thing, too, is most people have probably played it and they just didn't know it. They were just playing it on a video game. Literally every RPG out there is is coming from that in some fashion. Right. Well, I know when um, and, and Tony, actually, I ran you through this game once. I did uh, when I was first doing my first playthrough with Skyrim. It did make me think of, hey, here's a different way to approach a D and D game. In that, Skyrim's dungeons tend to be much smaller, and you tend to run through things much faster. And I started thinking about, okay, well, you know, applying that to a D and D to a D and D game where things are a little smaller, your encounters are shorter, your your environments are, are smaller, your map environments are smaller, uh, would be pretty cool. And we actually played a game. You and uh, one of your friends at the time played a game with me where we did that and it went over pretty well. We just never had the time to come back and do it again. Uh, but so that definitely did influence, uh, it made me think about building D and D encounters differently in that, you know, kind of, how can you kind of shorten them up? How can you throw in like one or two monsters in a small environment versus a bunch of monsters in a large environment to deliver a game that's kind of more quick bites than long drawn out, uh, combat. I haven't gone back to that in a little while. Uh, I'm actually pulling on some of those ideas now as we take another look at Woodstock Wanderers, to be honest. I think Final Fantasy really summarized masterfully turn-based combat. I mean, honest to God, like back in the day were no video games. And I have to say, a lot of the original Dungeons & Dragons games on the comp- on whatever system, let me just say they were rough. And that's, <laughs> and, uh, let's leave it there. Um, I mean, my God, the Ravenloft computer game, the original one. You know what? I think I'd rather be trapped actually in Ravenloft than have to go back and try to beat that game. (laughs) Very tough memories with that. Um, But with the with uh, Final Fantasy, did a lot of neat stuff with interpersonal character with character dialogue, especially in the later Final Fantasy. You had multiple characters with personalities. And you saw them interacting, and like, oh, I wish I could get my party to interact like this. That each of the characters have good moments, and what you see is all these characters have their moments to shine, which ideally you want your players to. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will say, Tony, I, uh, just because in the last, oh God, bunch of years, I haven't been doing as much uh, video gaming at all. Um, so I definitely wouldn't pull influence from there, but I will say. Uh, you know, on my off time, I'm either uh, generally I'm, I, I, I like to read a lot, but I also watch a pretty good amount of movies and, and TV. And 
I can't tell you how many things like D and D just has eclipsed them because now all I'm thinking is like, Oh, that'd be a pretty cool encounter. Oh, how could I build that into a, Oh, I could probably make that into, you know, so I'm constantly pulling um, inspiration for stuff from everything and any TV show, any movie, any book, there's something there where I go, Oh, that's uh Okay, that's something right there. I'm even in our writers group. I'll be writing. I'll be reading some of the submissions, Thorn, and I'm like, I could make that into it. Okay, I, that's absolutely. That's a whole world right there. I could just play in, you know. So yeah, I pull a yeah. ton of influence from uh, from that stuff. A ton. I feel the Legacy of Kane series absolutely influenced for a solid decade my DMing. Um, particularly my fascination with vampires, uh, with the lore surrounding them, that they're just not creatures that run around and uh, the, some of the traditional ways that they were looked at uh, where they're moved from just being monsters to something much more, I mean, it gave much more depth is what I'm saying. And it had a whole stronger mythology opposed to, hey, here's the Dracula book. That's it. And then some other legends and other cultures about life stealers. But this really, like, blew the lid off that. Um, even things like Ninja Gaiden, um, Knights of the Old Republic, they, they all had really neat aspects to them. Character interactions, how they acquired their powers, uh, the items they had. And I'm like, yeah, I want to steal these. Hi shameless hijacking. <laughs> So if you ever want to play a vampire character, let me know. I got you. You could do that. We we could do we could do an all vampire party. We've never we I I tempted. I offered one of the parties a chance to become you know, vampires from Strahd, but no, no one wanted to do that. <laughs> that was yeah. that was that one game, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my lawful good wizard was like, mm, I'm feeling so strong about this. I'm trying to tempt you away, you know. It's it's, it's you got to dangle some power. There, there's no such thing as being lawful good unless there's a good reason to be lawful not good. And I uh, I I don't think we can probably get away from it uh, just because we've we've spoken so much about it that obviously it's begun to influence us too. But uh, for me, especially like a lot of the books out of the out of the fifth edition now, I think even more so because I came through Pathfinder. So I came through a super crunchy system that allowed levels of optimization and customization that was, um, I mean, almost endless and infinite, uh, but also brought on the level of complexity and, and, and math that's required of that, uh, that by coming down into 5e from there, I went, oh, and I didn't necessarily think about what I didn't have. I just went, oh, well, you don't necessarily need to have that to still have the experience of what we're going for, which is, you know, make-believe. Um, so for me, I've, I, you know, I obviously, I mean, shit, we've spent 30 episodes talking about it, but, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the fifth edition books, I, you know, I'm constantly, I, that's what I'm going to, cause that's what we're playing. Right. And I, I, I don't, for the things that we say, we don't necessarily like, or we would like to see more of, um, it's not like a, it, it's little stuff. It's not. It's not necessarily the big stuff that I, that I that we've kind of come to. You know, we did a whole episode about that a while back. Yeah. I mean, would I say any fifth edition stuff has been a big influence on me? I get, I'm running a lot of it, so so I guess from that point of view, yes. Um, I do like 
some of the things fifth fifth edition embraced certain things that past editions have been a little reluctant to, mm. uh, such as wild mages, wild magic. I do think they've developed the sorcerer in a really cool way. I think there's some cool stuff in the monk that really hadn't been around since first edition, which I think is really neat. Um, but for me, like if we're talking again, kind of like like what are kind of the the big influences on you as a DM? A yeah. lot of it goes back to second edition. And I'll go back to another one. So you know, we hit the the arms and equipment guide. Mentioned briefly some of the other splat books like the the fighter's handbook the the celtic handbook we mentioned yeah very influential to me because of the way they tended to they tried to tie history into the game and into the expansion stuff they were doing now the other thing for me was actually the monstrous compendium you have said this before yeah if you didn't play in second edition you don't know what this is uh, everything before and since second edition has gotten away from this model. It's now all monster manuals. They're hardcover bound books. Second edition had the monstrous compendium. It was a, the pages were loose leaf and they came with a three ring binder that you could expand. And so you could buy additional monstrous compendiums, two, three, four, and then integrate all those monsters into your monsters compendium in the three ring binder. And then when you're going to go play your session, you could just open it up and take out the pages and load them and just put them in your folder to go play the session. So two things about this really influenced me. Number one, I don't think we have ever had as many monsters as we had in the monsters compendium. By the time I was done with that, my second edition monsters compendium, which is a very large, like I said, it's a big three ring binder the covers were no longer angling down. They were <laughs> I had gotten enough of those pages that that was loaded. And it was so many cool options for monsters. Well, to be fair in that pocket, of second edition, there was, by the time it hit the end of its run, it's great. I mean, I love the flavor. I love the depth, but there was five volumes of just wizard spells that were published. Yeah. yeah. More books. monsters than you could possibly imagine, which is great. It is great, but then it's like, you know, I'm looking up, it was a double-edged sword, dare I say. Like, you're looking up some of these crazy, kooky spells, and as you can probably imagine in 2E, weren't the most balanced things. Like, I made his <laughs> nose explode, you know? The, uh, it's like it's like the diner menu, right? Like you walk into the diner, it's two a.m. and they hand you the menu, and it's thirty-seven pages long. It has whole sections on Italian. Right. And I well, put a purple and cheese. And you're well, like, yeah, just get some eggs. <laughs> Tui was the addition for a very long time, and you have different stages in its development, right? So the the five volumes of spells you're talking about, Tony, that stuff, the, the the spell compendiums and the item compendiums were released right at the end. What led up to that was many, many, many years of having monthly magazines adding new stuff, because a lot of that stuff came out of Dragon Magazine, which had new spells and new equipment and new monsters and every magazine, month. Yeah. Dungeon Magazine, which again had dungeons with new spells, monsters and equipment, like I think it was every two months. And then you also had the development model for second edition. They released a number of hardcover books. They released a bunch of box set expansions, each of which had their own items and their own spells and their own monsters for the setting. And then they started releasing what Dave calls the splat books, which are like the, what I call like the handbooks, the fighter's handbook, the elven handbook. There were a ton of handbooks, 
both fantasy handbooks that just build out like things like dwarves and elves and the, they, they, they made handbooks for every race, handbooks for every class, and then a bunch of handbooks for actual historical settings. You had Rome, you had Greece, you had, you had the Celts, I believe you had the Carthaginians, I might be remembering that wrong. Uh, you had a complete book of castles, you had a separate book about doing, doing, uh, uh, large-scale warfare although that might have been a technically owned but that might have been technically a separate product but it plugged into D&D and then so that was all kind of the first kind of run of it then they started reevaluating it and doing the reprints where they did all the players option stuff players option spell and spells and magic players options combat and tactics there's there was a book just for players options that was just kind of your core basis of this where they changed they gave you options in the system like using character points to build your character instead of race and class uh, so you customize it more and then they on top of that they started doing the um uh they started doing the compendiums after those things so like you kind of had like a multi-tier buildup that got to this point where at the end of the run they're producing these you know, four and five volume compendiums of all the items and all the spells. But leading up, but like leading up to that, things were more balanced so long as you didn't look too closely at Dungeon and Dragon. Because mm -hmm. Dungeon and Dragon, I mean, you're talking about a monthly publication. That stuff is not getting play tested the same mm -hmm. way as anything else. Like I actually pitched the Dragon. I almost got I uh I was writing for 2E and I was a little late because the article I pitched would have been 2E when they were just switching to 3E. But I actually, like, you could get in. Like, it wasn't a hard thing to get an article in the Dragon magazine. You said to have cool ideas and write fairly well. And you could get into the magazine. It was paying, like, I think, I want to say they paid six cents a word. Very low rate. Uh, like, like, it wasn't much, but you could Back get your stuff in the day. It was, like, three cents a word to get, a, to, get a, to get your dungeons printed in Dungeon. Like, which is, um, uh, so, so just a magazine page generally has something like it's a thousand words. If it's not, if it doesn't have art with art, it's usually more like five or 600 words, depending on how artistic your magazine is. So put that in perspective, right? You, anyone could write for them at a relatively low rate and there wasn't a lot of checking. So a lot of this kind of imbalance didn't come in from the core products where they were kind of balancing things pretty carefully. Although the handbooks were handled freelance, so they weren't always so balanced either. But it was coming from this monthly magazine that had people, you, me, anyone. It was basically the internet before we had the internet. It was D&D well, Wiki like, before yeah, we had homebrew. It's like what they're, um, yeah, it's they're doing all the all the homebrew stuff you can find on Google right. now. But it's as if you put it all into uh, into some large book somewhere. <laughs> and you get paid for it. Paid a bit, yeah. still paid <laughs> a little bit for it. So I mean, that approach to second edition, though, like, so you kind of got to look at it. I think if you look at second edition from the end of it, you kind of miss how the like kind of where it was balanced because there was what happened was it just it ran its lifetime, and by the end of its lifetime, there was crazy stuff in there. But I thought like the monstrous compendium. Getting back to kind of where that like how that influenced me, the monstrous compendium. I had so many monsters in it and so many different kinds of monsters and i do feel like fifth edition does a bad job with monster selection like there should be in my opinion many more monsters in fifth edition than there are and there's not nice monster jeez i'm still annoyed yeah i mean that's the thing in second edition i i find whatever idea i had hey i want to find an ice elemental i go look at the monsters monsters compendium there would be an ice elemental like you had everything you wanted and fifth edition is going on for a long time it's just we're seeing yes. the difference in their design philosophy they're not releasing as many dm focused products that expand things like the monsters they're focused much more on giving players new stuff and giving more adventures and more and more and more campaign settings and that sort of thing. Which so makes sense. 
from a certain point of view, but I got to say, I liked the, the Monsters Compendium was more influential to me because that's how I, that's kind of, you know, you take those two things together. Interesting world that is based in the world itself and the world's mechanics full of these monsters. And I have monsters for every occasion. That's how I DM. Yeah. Like, that's pretty much it. And the first Monsters Compendium actually came with a blank sheet. The last page was a blank monster monster entry for you to fill in. They So they weren't just, a, it was that, they, yeah. And I was like, and I filled that in, like, I don't know, like, uh, probably within the first month of having the book, because not only did it give you all did these monsters. Did you make monsters, a horrifyingly ridiculous monster? I don't remember. Uh, I probably have it. I don't I, I don't know where that is. I wish I well, had to that. tell you the truth, Thorin, I, I, I can see how that is would be uh, right up your alley, because it's kind of what you do now, except it would make it a lot easier for you. Because you could have pulled out just those sheets instead of having to have three books open in your lap, which is kind of how you run currently. And you got like, you know, you have placeholders in each book and three books open. So there you could just have like the five sheets out in front of you. My big takeaway, my impression of second edition versus fourth and fifth, having skipped third, is that from a DM point of view, I felt like I had a lot more resources, more easily accessible and easier to, to just kind of mess with them and create things than I do in fourth and fifth edition. Like the Monsters Compendium, there were so many monsters in there that you're like, oh, I'll just throw on one of these. And you didn't really, it was just easy. It felt very easy for me to make a monster. They actually gave you, no, fifth edition also gives you instructions on how to make a monster. Don't get me wrong. But it just felt like there were so many monsters to choose from. And then, oh yeah, I'll throw one of these in. That all felt, it, it was very creatively encouraging to me and very encouraging to kind of just explore stuff and pull other things in. So to me, that block of second edition stuff, the approach they took to those, the approach, the approach they took to the core books, the approach they took to the handbooks and the approach they took to the Monstrous Compendium, incredibly influential on how I DM even today. Yeah, I can see that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> huh? That's that a powerful rant, sir. So Tony, you keep you you've, you've mentioned a bunch of like pop culture things that influence you from the mechanical point of view and how you run your game. Like what kind of what really kind of influenced you? Well, one of the complaints I had about the original versions of Dungeons and Dragons was how the fighting act actually looked versus how fighting looks cinematically. For example, you watch I don't know one of the original Robin Hoods like Errol Flynn, and they're having a duel. Well, that's really not what Dungeons and Dragons, at least mechanically, looks like. Now, I understand they'll describe it and say, well, that one attack may mean nine attacks yeah. that you've done. But nobody really describes that in the combat. Like, you're sitting there dueling with, you know, this Hydra like that. Basically, the earlier versions of Dungeons and Dragons looked like I'd run up to Dave and stab him twice, and he'd run come right back at me and stab me three times. <laughs> and then we just go back and forth stabbing each other until one of us died. Oh. And I'm like, there's no blocking, there's no parrying, <laughs> and, that's, and that's what kind of made attracted me to the Palladium system that did that. Mm. The problem there was that was god forsakingly complicated, and it's not like you know I'd attack, you'd parry, I'd attack, a par you parry. Um, no, it's like, well, I get six attacks, but you get eight attacks, but you want initiative, and I'm holding four attacks back for blocking, and then. I'm going to try some cold shots. He's going to do a disarming strike, but I'll do a pinning strike. And then, you know, it's a, it turns into a game of Twister. And the other players are like, when is it my round? I'm so bored. I'm sitting here watching the two of you have one combat round, and it's been, you know, seven minutes. Well, that's what I was saying about games. That's what I was saying about simulationist games, right? Yep. I've yet to find a simulationist system that didn't get 
overly complicated. It can't. I have said it before too. I disagree that it can be done either because if every time you add something that adds a level of realism, you are adding another rule that has to be adhered to somehow. And the larger they are, the more that all of those rules matter because you have made decisions based on all of those. And like I was saying with Pathfinder, you have a lot of those kinds of things and it can get ludicrous. Now it does add a level of realism and it adds a level of uh, different options during combat and all of this kind of stuff. But you have to now look at all of that stuff and have it. You have to have whole different numbers, uh, CMB and CMDs that are specifically for your combat maneuvers, whether it's attack or defense and it's based on that. And am I hitting you touch or flat footed? or surprised or and i have different acs for all of those as well which makes a very robust system that you have to know all these numbers for and as you level up god help you and that's why like when i came down to a more streamlined system i appreciate a lot of the things that let me fill in because i get what you're saying tony with the like the errol flynn idea you know but they allow me to use my imagination to fill in, or the DM to allow their their narration and imagination to fill in those gaps as to what's happening with that. You know, we've all done that. I've seen we've all done that when we are describing a hit. It's not just hit or miss. Sometimes it's a glancing blow, or it's a parry, or it's a whatever it might be. You know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I there's no, no, a, there's there's some hard limit to how many mechanics you can have to make things realistic before it becomes overbearing. That, that's think, very well said. So in Pathfinder, I get that you can get complicated. Can yeah. you do it simple? Like, is the complicated just optional? Or is it like, you know, do you get the most out of this? You really got to get into this. Not that I have, not that I saw mm -hmm. with playing it. Um, and not from what I hear, because that's mainly what most people are attracted to is the, the level of the, yeah. the crunch, yeah, the level of complexity, because that complexity allows your character to be completely different from someone yeah. else's character, you know, where a lot of people say the opposite for something like 5e, where it's becoming like it's all moving towards every class is pretty much the same. And the only thing different is my backstory, you know. Um, well, there's that argument with Tasha's as they expand things. I don't know if I entirely buy it. I don't know if I do either. I'm just saying I, that's where, you know, you see the general consensus kind of goes that way. And for Pathfinder, the general consensus is because of the level of customization, you know, which it yeah. sounds like they did away with with their second edition huh. release, but I don't know yet. <laughs> I, don't, I think that conversation is actually very specific to Pathfinder slash D&D 3.5 versus 5e, because fourth mm. edition was the edition that very specifically made everyone alike. Like, yeah, you might not be able to heal from every class, but like everyone worked the same way. Like effectively wizards had wizard spells and fighters had fighter spells effectively. Right. That's basically right. The way Powers and all that. Yeah. Fifth, and fifth, fifth edition is a better happy medium, in my opinion. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You said earlier there, you could just customize the crap out of your 4E character. And is anything really worthwhile? Uh, sometimes See, actually i would disagree you can customize the crap out of your three character i don't think you could do much customization in four because you always had this limited number of power slots and they were the most important things you had oh god now nah, like, they were so 
background options. Like, I, I leveled up, and then you did the hokey pokey. You take one power out, you put one in, you know, you, you move some stuff around. And, <laughs> and like, my, go ahead and tell my players that are set in their ways. I'm like, okay, so you're getting a new power. Yay, that's great, but you have to give up your old power. What? And it's yeah. like I'm stealing like like yeah. I'm stealing the pizza and running out the door at the game table. Like that's how that well that was received. <laughs> I mean, yeah, actually, I, I you did have a lot you could change. Actually, fifth edition does too. Like the warlock in fifth edition honestly works that same way. Every level you get a new spell, but every time you get a new spell, you can swap out an old spell for a new spell, and you cast everything at top level. So you're generally looking to you often trade off an old spell for a new spell to get two new top level spells and his invocations work the same way. So all those little tweaks that kind of adjust how the character works, you can, every time you get a new invocation, you can also swap another invocation. So some characters in fifth edition do work that way, where as you go up, you're constantly swapping and adjusting. Yeah. Bars can swap out too. Yeah. And I think sorcerer works the same. I think the same way. Uh, which is neat. I love that fifth edition did that where you can do where it kind of does different, like different characters work different ways. I think that's actually a really nice aspect of fifth edition because the champion fighter versus the battle master fighter, like the champion fighter is very old school D and D that is, I'm just a fighter and I'm going to come over and bash your head in. Yeah. You know, the battle master is very fourth edition. The blades, the, um, the Eldritch Knight is very kind of second edition gish kind of thing. They did a great job of kind of putting in character class options that fit almost anything you want to do in different kinds of players. I love that. They did a great job with that. Um, I want to get back to the second stage, what you're saying about complexity. Yeah. I, I've looked at a lot of systems that get complex. I like a certain level of complexity in the equipment and kind of uh, how fighting works a little bit. Right. But I think... I suspect the key to doing an effective system that's a little more simulationist without getting too nitty gritty is in the stuff you hang on what's already there. What I mean is I'd like to see like a little more detail with your armor and your weapons. And what it effectively becomes is they're like powers that aren't magic, but I think you can add more stuff that way. That doesn't make the game any more complex than it already is. Cause you're already looking at that stuff for magic items. It's just, there's a, you, you add another kind of menu of non-magical optimization to them where you can say, okay, this thing has this power due to its engineering, due to how it was built, due to the purpose it was made to serve. The other thing I think you can do, you can do more with feats, but that can get out of hand. And I think in Pathfinder, that's one of the things that gets out of hand is I know people love the feats, but I know that's also where a lot of the, the feats become, a lot, yeah. a lot of the complex <laughs> calculus comes in. Um, they are like, super cool though, because they give you this, like, Oh my God, now I can do this, you know, but yeah. yeah. Like I prefer the idea and fifth edition does this a little bit. I actually kind of like this about fifth edition combat maneuvers. So like, if I was going to try to make combat and particularly kind of working on a fifth edition base and trying to make it a little more realistic, I would build out more equipment. Uh, attributes and abilities that are more about specializing equipment, not magic, and probably build out more optional combat maneuvers like the push shove rule. So you give you give the you give the players the options to do things that they don't need to do, but if they get them and they want to explore them, there's more depth there, and of course there's more depth for the enemy to come at them. Uh, there's still a lot of potential in a deep pike wall. You, know, you throw a throw a wizard behind them, the counterspell fireball, and you come at the party with you know like yeah, <laughs> the four or five rows of pikemen stabbing them, and I think things get pretty pretty funky, especially if you give them polearm master. Uh, <laughs> like like there are tactical things you can already do, and just building that out a little more, I think, 
for me would be would be neat. I don't know if all the players would feel that way, and I do think at a higher level, Magic probably wipes it out anyway. Uh, so yeah. With Five E, a very agonizing lesson I've learned over the course of my time as DM is you really need to throw multiple monsters out there for all of your battles. And we've talked about this early on. I'm like, I want to throw out this one bad guy. You know what watching Ninja Turtles taught me? That Shredder can kick their ass. I like that feel. Like, you know, I want to have that Darth Vader, like, villain that the guys come at him. And, you know, he's notably stronger than them. And they're on their heels. I need to come up with a plan to defeat this villain, you know, whatever it is, because of the power it exudes. Um, You're saying you want your Skeletor? Uh, I was a little traumatized by Skeletor back in the 90s, and I don't mean Skeletor from He-Man. My Skeletor was an Adamatite-covered lich with, with wounding <laughs> for sharpness swords. Uh, yeah, that, that was a nightmare unto itself. That was my father's sword campaign, but I digress. <laughs> so you're running all these different monsters because you can't just put one monster out there. Because why? Because all the players will surround that monster and spam them with your with their powers. Like, ah, here's all the stuff I've been saving. Blah! It's just like a collage of all their, their abilities that they've been holding on to for the, the pivotal moment. So I wish, Tony, I wish you had been there for the Ark Kang fight. Because I feel like <laughs> while he did have henchmen with him, I feel like Ark Kang worked exactly like you want your villains to work. He had a couple of tricks up his sleeve. One, he had the globe of invulnerability, which means when the party, he was sitting up on a pillar and he did have a few minions, but they were wiped up pretty quickly. They weren't too dangerous. But while the fighters started to deal with the minions and all the magic users started throwing like a 4th of July level of fireballs at him, he just laughed them off because the globe of invulnerability made those slip away. And then he had evasion. He's a snake person. He, he, he is a, uh, he's an Aarakocra. He's a few levels above the party. Not He was like three or four levels above oh, the party. Oh, he's a bird man. Bird man. Yeah. And then he has monk <laughs> evasion and he's got, and, and, but that it's funny because what you're saying is this guy did not have that problem, but at the same time, he was so, so hard for the party to corner and defeat that they really didn't like him. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, nothing's quite like, you know, that climatic moment where you've been building up to something. And I, I feel like, you know, the party defeat's okay, but it, it still has to have a feel like the story moved, the football moved, you know, like nobody walked out of, uh, you know, the, the second star, the, the Empire Strikes Back and they're like, oh, no, this is the most <laughs> terrible movie ever. No, the bad guys won. That kind of made it cool. But the story progressed. Well. Uh, the party uh, that's beat, a, yeah, it's a good point. The party beat Ark Kang, though. Like, they actually, he ran away at the end of that fight, but it was just, he was, like, his evasion and his defenses were, but, okay, so I guess it's twofold. One, there were the tools in there to do that. And if you ever want a hand on doing that, let me know. Because there are definitely spells and abilities you can throw on monsters that make them, that, that will offset the whole, you know, hey, we're launching 55, you know, a 57-gun salute at this dude as soon as we see him on the table. Well, yeah, uh, 5e did one very interesting mechanic that introduced was concentration. So my mm. previous villains would be saturated in magical defenses. I'd yeah. be like, come at me. I'm hasted. I'm displaced. I have shield. I've got protection <laughs> from good. I mean, I, I'm blurred. You, you, I got. I have a, a major global vulnerability up. You name it. I, I'm packing. 
you know, and you can start casting the spell magic. What does that do? Take down a spell effect? Mm-hmm. Well, you only have a spell effect now. So that's, it stops player and villain shenanigans alike, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think the, I think the trick in fifth edition is legendary resistances and gobs and gobs and ungodly gobs of hit points. Like that's really the, like that, and that that is kind of the the, the the fifth edition model actually, you know, with bounded accuracy, you never get too hard to hit, but as you level up your villains, you add a lot of hit points, and then you add some legendary resistances they can use against save or suck spells, so they can absorb a couple fireballs and shake off a couple banishments and still have a fight with the party. I think that's kind of the best way to do that in this system. I I can see how that playing out. Um... I haven't really – I've I've been in a lot of mass combat situations for the majority of Storm Kings, to be perfectly honest. And, mm-hmm. well, to Dave's point, man, aren't my turns long enough as it is? I would <laughs> love – like, you know what? You actually brought up one time like where I did the description of something and I cut it real short. I'm like, yeah, he breathes cold on you. <laughs> like, I'm running a battle. There's like friggin' 16 monsters out here. I'm running yeah. my NPC. <laughs> I'm running – the NPC that you uh, conscripted to help you, his two henchmen, and th- th- that guy brought in somebody. It was an absolute clusterfuck of tokens on this Viking <laughs> ship we were on. And I'm like, yeah, he just breathed some cold. All right, save, 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 done, next. So the one, the Fire Giant's Golem was actually a solo fight that went like a solo fight should. Well, yeah, he was... Okay, in my story, I mean, I hate to reveal all my secrets. In terms of my story, um, I, I made you do uh, another quest to reduce that creature's power when you fought it, or he would have been theoretically unbeatable. At his full power, uh, he was a preposterous CR. Like, truly preposterous. Like, over CR 20, and you guys are running around at CR 10. Um, that, that That's more your cup of tea. So... Um, yeah, you didn't give us an option not to fight him. It was we had to fight him. It's like no, 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 no. The it was that or take on the the fire giant stronghold. <laughs> well, you know what? You were able to negotiate that. You played into what he felt was important. You made points. Um, and again, we're not railroading this. I didn't know how you're going to solve this. Are you going to go into there and try to sneak in and assassinate the fire giant duke? Are you going to you know sell out the frost giants like what? You, mean, yeah. you could have double crossed them and like, hey, I got in with the Frost Giants. F those guys. We, we they're I weak. Now's our chance to go. Eat. <laughs> there, there was a lot of different ways you could have played it, and I was, and that, that's what things I find exciting is about the DM. I'm like, all right, well, how, how are they gonna do this? Are they gonna get TPK'd? Because Fire Giants are fugly. They are dangerous. <laughs> Talk about players the- not dying. They haven't met Fire Giants. Zhang walks into every room trying to figure out how he's going to kill everyone in there. And I think when he hit the fire giant room, he was like, I, I can't. I can come back. <laughs> I'm going to sit close to the king because my only hope is that if they start a fight, I can kill the king or at least take him hostage and get him to back off. Because we can't take all these dudes. <laughs> no, that, that was such a death trap. It was such a death trap. I, you, probably, you might not have noticed, but I literally had Zhang, Zhang sit close to the king for exactly that reason. <laughs> In case things popped off, I wanted to be within glaive length of the king. Oh man! <laughs> Can't wait to get back to this game. I know, uh, I know we, we've it's been on hiatus due to due to some scheduling conflicts, but I'm looking forward to. That. I love the character. I like the character I'm playing in all these games. So, uh, Tony, mechanically though, any actual supplements 
that, that, that really kind of shaped your playing and influenced you? Well, I, I will actually kind of piggyback what you said with the Arnold Arcana. Uh, that is a fantastic, the original one. Uh, yeah. I have not read the newest one uh, because well, the new, I felt the, like, uh, to be really fair, I, I, I like how magic works in 5e, but in some of the earlier editions, I, I really wanted to sit down and read every spell and be like, because I mean, this is back in the day. This is my first yeah, exposure to it. Yeah. And I look at this I'm like, okay, so what does this do? Like what? Because also one of the reasons for that was because wizards had less juice. Yeah. I think that's really the real core reason. Not that like, even like, it's less neat, but wizards had very a finite amount of energy. They didn't have at wills. They didn't have can trips. You had four spells. Once you're out, you're just a geriatric old fool with a bad armor class, <laughs> low hip points, and a shit weapon. Gandalf be damned. Honestly, guys, you could be a fourth, you could be a level four wizard and have like 11 hit points and a nine armor class. You're you're a dead man in, in, in any real combat situation with dragon spells. I'll tell you what, I totally feel that because I too have not had any desire to read every spell in the fifth edition book. And I think the reason is in second edition, the spells changed the world. They weren't all combat focused. They were very, there are a lot of spells. I mean, I'm just mean like a subset. I mean, a lot of spells that did weird shit that you then turned around and figured out a way to use in combat. And that is not at all how fifth edition works. Fifth edition, like 90% of it is wrapped around combat. And a few things are kind of handy dandy spells on the side. And nothing's really like open ended uh, from what I've seen. Like nothing's like, well, you know, you just, you turn the ground to mud and the army sinks and drowns and that's it that's the end okay well played wizard <laughs> all right yeah like but, and that's a that's a great point because that's exactly what we're seeing in the marvel system because yeah. of when it was written and when it was created and it was the tsr product from the mid 80s is the powers the way they built it so for all of the listening audience the powers within the marvel uh system the base rip system in essence give you the possibility to, uh, let's say, uh, you know, fire control or fire generation or something. It doesn't let you necessarily do anything with it. That's where you do these power stunts. So you have to then figure out with this power, how does that look? What do I do with it? Much like you would see in the comics, you know, like the X-Men are training in the danger room and Storm is learning how to call lightning now you know or something it's, it's not something that just is second nature to her so in a very similar way i think spells were um they had that same kind of idea here's an idea play with it as opposed to this is exactly what it does they suck the energy out of some of the spells like color spray from back in the day where like you read the spell you want to read these details because one spells like magic missile and you fire a magic missile doesn't miss cool Color spray in the earlier editions would knock these monsters the fuck out. It was like, oh, five monsters come at you. Take a nap, guys. You're done. <laughs> Tie them up. That's so one thing. And actually, thing, uh, real, real quick, uh, color spray in the Pathfinder does that because I did that on a uh, – Chris was running a game, and I was playing a wizard, and I blasted color spray. I knocked every cobalt out in the whole room. It was just immediately. Yeah. Oh, it's, he was it, like, it, wait, it he was amazing. like, wait, what? What does it do? And I was like, well, it does. Blah, 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 blah. And it's just, they're all done. You know, He's sleep like, was the same okay. way. Sleep, sleep was like your best friend Almost at first level. Almost as good. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite as good, but it was because of the relative hit point scaling in fifth edition. Like it's a similar mechanic, but you got a lot more mileage out of it at first level and second edition than you did in than you do in fifth edition. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. That was super powerful. Um, and super fun. That it makes the it makes the mechanic of I've only got one or two shots of my gun make a little bit of sense instead of just being horrifyingly it, underpowered. <laughs> you know it's funny because we say I've only got one or two shots of my gun. That is exactly how you play a warlock in fifth edition. <laughs> oh, you just want rest to get it back. To be fair, and then you save your key. And then you got a, a eldritch blast at 120 feet too. You've got so. the game's yeah. only cannon. Yeah, basically. yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a true. You got the Gatling gun. So, on uh, Arthur Canada, though, Tony, what else was it about on Arthur Canada that really kind of was it just like the possibilities it put in front of you, or was it something about kind of the what it like how like did it, uh, it something else that I want to present it? Okay, there was actually a lot of rules. It, the, the original DMG was fantastic. There were some rules in there that were a little laborious, to be perfectly honest. Like I don't necessarily think I need a chart as a DM in case one of my players is turned into a werewolf and they're wearing full plate. How much damage do they take? I'll pass. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, but this added, um, it brought up more details for certain <laughs> classes. Uh, and as I said, with the magic items and with the spells, it added depth. This is, I believe the other canon was pre-Tome of Magic. In fact, I am, or it had to be because it's a first edition project product versus a two-year yeah. product. Yeah. So if you want to do spells that were in your player's handbook, there they were. They did some interesting stuff. They got into summoning demons. There was some cool, cool stuff. They talked about the illusionist. The illusionist was a completely separate class, and they could alter reality. They were like, oh, I make a stupid illusion, and you just believe it. Punch me in the face. I'm like, no, man. Rocks fall, and you're crushed by them. Even if, <laughs> you know, I've willed them into reality. But uh, real fast before I pivot and, and let someone else take it, yeah, we're talking about our, our Marvel face rough characters while they're still alive till we die next game in our battle with the elders of the Earth. Galactus has appeared. Yeah, it, it's excessive. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> no one's gained the level yet, but we've gained a Galactus. It's a little... <laughs> I'm not sure how we get out of this one. <laughs> um, I'm planning to have you do some fast talking. We're going to do some ah. distracting. You're going to do some face, fast talking. And I'm probably going to have Bonnie go talk to Galactus, yes. And I'm probably going to go to another dimension and uh, just be like, well, that place is really crazy. I wouldn't go back there, guys. Void is like, the next circuit's going to bitch out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Void? Void. I'm looking for something I can reprogram. I don't know. Oh, man. So, you know, uh, we've been going on like this for a while, guys. Uh, you know, it, it's really cool covering all the stuff we've that have influenced us. But let's get to uh, final thoughts. So final thoughts, what kind of thing has tended to influence you? And, like, if you're a new, a new DM listening here, what should they look for for the things that, like, really should influence their DMing? Things that could tie in to the games, and you could use these elements in pop culture – or in history, or whatever, to draw your players in. For me, movies, uh, we didn't even talk about really movies very much. The Holy Grail absolutely needs a very honorable mention here. Uh, <laughs> so that, that that really set a lot of tones for I me, mean, especially if you've seen my style of DMing, um, how uh, that could be relative. But uh, The Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, um, and The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, these are all things that you see people like Game of Thrones. They're like, oh, yeah, like Dave said, you like this? Okay, it's like this. I try to describe to people who know nothing about D&D. It's like, well, you're playing a movie. Do you, you know, how, did, you, did you like this? Well, you know, it's kind of like that. 
and I am not afraid to shamelessly doppelganger or hijack good ideas and use them in my own context. Because <laughs> what's an original idea at this point anyway? I mean, really. Uh, you know, all the best writers are the best thieves. Never said I was original. I just said, you know, I can, make a, <laughs> I can tell a good, I can spin a good yarn. What about you, Dave? Yeah, um, I think uh, a lot of the things that influence me are what are showing my, what I call my evolving style of DMing. You know, the things that I, that I, I keep and the other things that maybe I let go. Um, and I would say the same for people. Uh, you don't know what's going to influence you or inspire you out there. Uh, so check things out. You'll know when you hit it, though. If you've heard anything when we've been talking here, all of this stuff hit us pretty much almost immediately. We went, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I need. That's what I'm looking for. That's how I want to do it. There it is. Uh, whether it's supplements and mechanics and books, whether it's pop culture and all of that, you know it when you when you when you see it. So keep your uh, keep your eyes open and keep looking at things. Keep playing stuff and play different things too. Yeah, it's you know it's so important to. It, this is true of writing. This is true of any creative endeavor you're going to do. Anything creative. The more input you take in, the more the, the more stories you're engaging with, the more stuff you're watching, the more stuff you're reading, the more different games you're playing, the more input you have into your creative process, and it's all going to help you build better stuff in wherever your wherever your outlet is and that's whether you're a writer whether you're a dungeon master whether you're a podcaster the more you watch the more you take in the better the stuff is you're able to put out you know it's 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 food you got to feed you got to feed your head or your creative soul you feed your creative that is that is a much more poetic way to oh, put it man. thank you tony man wow. and so for me final thoughts wise you know i'm going to echo what dave said there it's you know every time i get something that really inspires me man i feel it and there is, especially around D&D, there is a feeling I've had with nothing else that's just, and you know, it's, and I, I can describe it as a feeling of, you know, this limitless potential, looking at this world, except I can't really convey the physical feeling I get from it. There mm -hmm. is a thing. It's like your stomach. It's like kind of like, you know, like kind of your, like, like your stomach kind of drops out. It is a real physical, visceral sense of, ooh, wow. Finding things like that really drives the train. You know, it's that, that really kind of feeds the engine and is what really drives you, one, to learn the system and learn how to DM it and learn how to do these games. And two, it gives you the creative juice to do interesting things. Because without that, you probably are just kind of kind of growing along and just kind of just kind of rolling with the punches. You're not really you're going to get your best creative stuff and your most interesting stuff and the things your players like the best when you're in that space, when you're, when you're going, wow. And you're able to turn that into a creative idea that makes the players go wow too. I think, you know, that's really what you want to try to bring into the game as a DM your inspiration, and then giving the players a chance to basically play with it and for you all to explore it. Uh, in terms of finding, you know, your own, your, your own inspiration, your own mechanical inspiration, you know, expose yourself to a lot of stuff, but I would, you know, the big thing is you kind of know it when you see it. Different things are going to inspire you in different ways. I went on like a 15-minute rant about how the Monster Manual and all these kind of little <laughs> realism details inspire me as a DM. And you know what? I don't think that stuff really matters to Dave or Tony at all. They don't inspire them to DM. It's totally different inputs, you know? That's Tony's good. talking a lot about how it's mythology and stories. I love Lord of the Rings. And, yes, wanting to be in those worlds brought me here. But I'm not inspired by the stories in the same way. Different DMs have different kinds of things they want to play with. Figure out yours. Figure out what gives you that feeling. And really go as go in that direction. Just just fall into it and turn that into your games. And I think that is really the best recipe for being, you know, a great DM. Well said.
All right, guys. Thanks again. It's been a fun conversation, man. A little walk down memory lane and remembering some of the coolest shit we've ever played with in our lives. Yes, yeah, seriously. seriously. <laughs> I see pictures of that stuff and I'm like, oh my God. That's oh oh, true, man. Some of those pictures from those early, like Dude. like the second edition players handbook pictures is like, boom, right? Like yeah. it's just, it's just a visceral reaction. Like it is. Yes, that, yeah. that was the fun stuff. I see a table and it tells me a werewolf and plate. I just, I drop to my knees. <laughs> we didn't even get into the games we didn't play. Like I actually, CJ, CJ Corella's witchcraft was a book I picked up. I never got to play, oh. but it had this kind of super, like kind of gritty. I'll say realistic, although realistic is not the right word for it, but like a, a kind of a, magic practitioner based magic and role-playing system where like anything he touched on was based in real world ways of doing things. Like if you're using a gun, it actually incorporated things like muzzle muzzle lift when you fire multiple shots from the gun, when you're using magic, he was pulling in ideas like, like actual magical details of using like of Wicca and other magic systems. It's super cool, but a little crunchy. And I can never quite get a game off the ground. Man, maybe right. something to come back to later, but okay. So we're wrapping up. So I'll stop digging into uh Digging into our side. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to another episode of Three Wise DMs. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your support. The the, the podcast and the website are both growing. Uh, you're seeing a lot more interaction on uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. So please, you know, if you like what you hear, if you're listening on a podcast platform, please smash that five star review button and give us a you know sh- give us a shout out. Let your friends know about the about the podcast. That'll help us grow. Also, you know, if you're only listening to the podcast, check out threewisedms.com, our website, where you're going to find twice as much content because we have an article coming out every week along with the podcast. Totally different content. You'll find even more stuff there. If you want to send us a question, we would appreciate it. A lot of our podcasts and a lot of our articles come from listener questions. So you can send us a question at threewisedms at gmail.com, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, we're responsive on all those platforms. That's three wise DMs and our website. We have the, what's your problem field. Uh, we can send us what's your problem for us to answer in an upcoming episode. If you do that, it's optional, but if you give us your email address, we can respond in person. Some of these we get, and we'd maybe don't get a name in an email address. And we answer the question. We don't have anyone to shout out, but we appreciate it. And we'll try to drop you a line. Uh, if we do answer your question, and, or even just and you heard DM Thor, we will answer it in person. We're going to come to your place of business or to your home and, that's right. Hey, we heard you had a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for listening to this episode. We'll catch you next week. Rewise DMs. <laughs>